0: Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be welcoming Jamison Green. Jameson is a prominent transgender rights activist, author, and educator focused on policy work. Jameson began living openly as a trans man in the late 1980s and is considered one of the few publicly open transgender men of that time. His book, Becoming a Visible Man, provides a compelling inquiry into the politics of gender. This prize-winning book also combines a candid autobiography with informed analysis to offer a unique insight into the multiple challenges of the female-to-male transsexual experience. So, um, Jameson, thank you so much for joining me today. I have been very much looking forward to this conversation. Jameson, can you talk to us about the night in June 1992 when you told your story to the men in the Sons group? I think for our listeners, that really sets up your overall story really nicely.
1: Mm. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Mallory. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me. June of 1992, um, I was a member of a men's group called the Sons of Orpheus. And one of um, the sort of ritual things that we did was men, each man had 10 minutes to tell his story. And um, you could do it many times in many ways. Um, Sometimes people would focus on a particular event sometimes people would try to encapsulate their whole story in, in, uh, that 10 minute, I actually got 20 minutes. (laughs) Um, and and they, they announced ahead of time, James is going to have 20 minutes to do this because, uh, his story is a little bit unique. And, um, And one guy got really, really upset. 20 minutes. And the leader, Bruce, said, don't worry, you won't be disappointed. (laughs) And uh, you'll understand. And I basically told the story of a boy named James, who people constantly told was, uh, was supposed to be a girl and how they dressed him in clothing that didn't fit with him and made him go to school that way and and how he struggled to try to be a good boy, how he struggled to try to be true to himself and you know support the with the things the good things that his parents wanted for him and but he also had to accept to a certain extent, the fact that he had a female body. And that was a very difficult thing to do because it, it didn't make any sense to him. And so when I told that story, and it was, it, um, the guys were totally amazed. They had no concept at all that I could have been someone who had been born in a female body. By the time I told this story, I had gone through a medical transition to change my body from female to male. And, um, and it was probably the best thing I had ever done for myself. And it really made me able to, to uh, fully actualize myself.
0: In your book, you talk about the fear you had about sharing the story. And for a good part of your book, after you had transitioned you had a lot of fear. I felt that through your writing and you talk a lot about that. Where did that fear come from? Because on the outside, you would never have assumed that you were somebody who was born in a female body. But I also know you had that fear of, you know, I hate to bring up this example, but I think of the movie Boys Don't Cry Mm -hmm. and how the ending of that. And it's a true story was absolutely horrific. And that is something that you talk about that fear of God forbid you go to jail or something were to happen, but talk to us a little bit about the fear and why you decided to face it that night.
1: It's important to me not to lie. It's important to me to tell the truth that, and there's so much misinformation and negative judgment about people who Go through a transition like this and it's tremendously unfair and tremendously um, harmful and the fact that so many people like myself have had to struggle with shame about who we are when in my experience you know the people that i've met who are transgender are incredibly talented, intelligent, sensitive, responsible people who just want to live their lives and be a contributor to society. And there's just there's the 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 shame that is heaped upon us and the misinformation about who we are and what we intend and what we're going to do and what we, how, if we exist, we're going to be destroying the entire system of social order uh, is just really unconscionable to me. And I had to tell the truth, but I'd also, specific to that night, I had been asked to be a leader of a men's group that was an adjunct group of this particular organization, because there was a big waiting list of guys to get into this group. And so um, the adjunct group would take the guys who were waiting and sort of train them, help them to adjust to the the context of, of the group. And um, when a spot would open up, then a man could move into that, into that spot if he wanted. And I felt like I, I had been withholding this information about my past from these men. And um, if I was going to be a leader, then I needed to be fully transparent and honest about who I was. And I, I think I felt that if and I was also doing a lot of a lot more activism, a lot more advocacy on behalf of the transgender community, which was actually quite nascent at the time. And I I and I'd been in a couple of films, documentary films by then. And so I thought, well, you know, somebody's gonna see me on television or they're gonna see a film and they're gonna go, what? <laughs> This guy has been teaching me how to be a man. What? (laughs) And uh, yeah, I, I, I just couldn't accept a leadership role without them knowing who I was.
0: So the point of this podcast is to learn about one another. And I will be completely transparent. I did not know the difference so much between transgender, transvestite, transsexual, as well as cisgender. For our listeners, this might be, they might've heard one of those terms, but maybe not understand the de- definition. Can you explain the difference to them?
1: Sure, I will, I will do my best. Um, transgender is probably the most commonly used term now. Um, and transgender is a grassroots developed term. It comes from within the community to try to describe a bit more about our experience the term transsexual is a medical term that basically is from the outside it's the it's the doctors saying oh this person wants to change their sex that's transsexual and it's it has become a pejorative term almost but to be honest there are many many people who that's it who feel that this t- this excuse me there are many many people who feel that this does describe their experience and in many other countries outside the united states transsexual is the only term some people have to describe themselves they don't have the term transgender so i i hate to see it be cast aside completely and disregarded it's also the medical history the medical literature is filled with that term if you don't know what it means how can you understand the the history and the literature so but prior the term prior to both of those terms both transsexual and transgender was transvestite that was the first medical term that was applied to people who sort of broke gender boundaries and people in and and transvestite literally means wearing the clothing of the opposite sex and now you know everybody wears t-shirts everybody wears jeans what is the clothing of the opposite sex you know it, let's be realistic just to label somebody by their clothing is kind of um superficial, shall we say. <laughs> so um, transvestite is a term that came about at the early, early, early 20th century, when people were first beginning, or medical professionals and psychological professionals were just beginning to look at the wide variety of kinds of expression in with related With relation to gender that were existing and at the time they thought it was a perversion of sexual desire and so it all got bound up with homosexuality so it's very very complex history that we don't use the term transvestite anymore Um, some people who actually do express themselves sexually by changing their clothing may use the term transvestite to self-describe, but it's been removed from all of the medical diagnoses and um, any kind of pejorative things like that. It's not um, it's not considered a major issue anymore. Um, cisgender is a new term. It's actually rooted in the Latin. Cis is a prefix that means on the same side. Trans is a prefix means being on the opposite side. And within molecular physics, cisgender is the application of the cis to the, the term gender, means your sex and gender line up. Transgender means your sex and your gender don't line up. They are on opposite sides of yourself. If you look at it that way.
0: So I read your book, becoming a visible man. And the first chapter I read and then had to sit with it. And then I had to reread it because you start your book with the question. And it seems like this is a question. Not only do you start your book with, but other when you're presenting or speaking to Uh, students or um, lectures, you all know what sex you are, right? Asking them that question. And then you follow up with, how do you know what sex you are? And it stunned me. And this is on the first page that I knew I was going to be learning a lot, but it really made me question, like, how do I know? Well, I've Mm -hmm. always been told. Can you explain to our listeners why you started your book, or you start presentations with that question?
1: How do you know? How do you know? That's the question that people ask trans people all the time. How do you know you're transgender? How do you know? Well, I ask you, how do you know what sex you are? You know it the same way I know. And people take so much for granted about sex and gender because it is a majority of people that experience their sex and gender in a cisgender way that their sex and their gender line up in the way that is expected by stereotype and by our general understanding and the medic from a medical position, it's simply an assessment of what sex you are when you're born is you just look at the genitals and you say what sex the person is. And then so much flows from that. And people's genitals don't look alike. And then people say, well, because we learned in the 50s, there's XX and XY chromosomes. In the 1950s, that was became clear to people. And that's not that, that far back in history. But people think, oh, every, we've known that forever. No, we have not. And we are still learning a lot about sexuality and how sex development happens and sexual differentiation. And right now uh, we know that there are many different types of types of chromosomal um, anomalies that occur that many, there are many people who are XXY or they are, there are XX males. There are XY females. There, there, it's all over the place. Most people don't have their chromosomes checked, so we don't really know. We've just made an assumption that all men are XY and all women are XX. And I try to explain that in this I, chapter.
0: That shocked me, along with the stat that roughly every one in every two thousand births in the U.S. hospitals um, are born with what it's called ambiguous genitalia where the doctor can't tell by looking at the infant, if it's a boy or a girl, one in every 2000. Yes. I'm sure I have met more than 2000 people in my life. So one, if you think about the stat and that really kind of set the stage for me when you're talking about chromosomes and being born that, there's no black and white in this. This is a very gray area. And I think that I know I went in thinking very black and white, but by the 10th page, I was like, nope, this is a gray world. And it made me look at things so differently, which is why I was so excited to have you come on, because I don't think people know this.
1: I agree. They do not know it. In fact, uh, two doctors just recently published a... uh, an article about this very topic in a very very descriptive simple clearly expressed just exactly the same points that i've just made and it's like oh people are going oh (laughs) and i wrote about this over 20 years ago
0: yes um in 1976 you saw a gentleman named steve dane on tv yes i did Can you explain who he is and what your reaction to seeing him on TV was and ultimately how that moment impacted your life?
1: Well, prior to that, many years prior to that, I had been uh, struggling. I'd been struggling all my life with the fact that I felt like a boy. I could not say that. I didn't. It just wasn't in the vocabulary. Um, And I, by the time. I started college in the mid 60s i had come to the realization that i was and I, the term i used was cross-gendered because i didn't know a term to use that and i to me that meant that there was there were wires between my brain and my body and somehow my wires got crossed and that my brain and my body didn't line up and I had heard by that time that there were female or excuse me, male to female transsexual people. Christine Jorgensen transitioned in the, in the early 1950s. She was very famous and people talked about transsexuals and often in very derogatory ways. And, but you never saw an example of a female to male person, a person who transitioned from female to male. And so I didn't think it was possible for me to actually change my sex. Um, and then I saw Steve Dane. Steve Dane was a, a girls PE teacher in high school in Emeryville, California, who um, transitioned basically and expected to keep his job. And this there were some people on the school board who objected to the fact that he had gone through this procedure, and so they fired him. And he, he felt that the students supported him, that the parents supported him, and that um, there, he hadn't done anything wrong or illegal, and so he was fired unjustly, and so he sued and as a result of the lawsuit, he became famous for a moment <laughs> because nobody remembers him. But um, he was on all the major talk shows of the day. And you know, so he was on Donahue. He was on um, some show that was emceed by. Um, oh, gosh, I forgot the guy's name. Geraldo. Yeah. Uh, by Geraldo, who was real young and new at the time. And um, I saw him on one of those shows and I was just blown away. I was like, Oh, it is possible. They, they can do it. I can do it. Then of course I had to question, should I do it? Would I do it? That was 1976. So yeah, it's a long process that I went through of evaluation and, and questioning and research.
0: So I would encourage everyone to read your book, but in your book, you start the hormones, you're in a relationship with your ex, Samantha, Mm -hmm. and you really kind of keep playing around with this idea. And internally, you know, you want to. She says she's supportive, um, but I think there's been times where we've all been supportive of others, but are uncomfortable by what does that mean for us? And will things change? And that's a separate conversation, I think, talking about, and you do cover it, like spouses who are in a relationship and their partner wants to transition and what that can be like. But you kind of go back and forth for a while. And your daughter, Morgan, you guys have a daughter, and then you have a son, Nick. And then you decide now's the time. Like You just can't keep living this lie. Or I looked at it as like a half-life. You weren't, you were living, but you weren't living true to yourself or your soul, really. Can you talk to us about why is it so like what that process was like? And there's a lot of steps that kind of go into it. And it's not easy, um, both mentally, physically, or financially to kind of go through that. But a very like high level. What are the steps that someone starts if they're in? If we have any listeners who might be interested but don't know what those steps look like?
1: Well, things are a bit looser now than I shouldn't say loose, because uh, there's still a, there's a, a better defined standard of care now than there was when I went through this. But at the time, there was this sort of step by step process that you would go through. First, you would go to mental health professional and you would get diagnosed as having transsexualism in the day that I did it. It was literally there was a diagnosis for transsexualism it doesn't exist anymore. But um, you would get this diagnosis. Uh, the, currently, the diagnosis is gender dysphoria which doesn't apply only to trans people. It's a much broader uh, array of conditions that people might experience. Anyway, just being diagnosed with gender dysphoria doesn't mean you're going to go through sex reassignment. But when I did it, it was transsexualism. You would go to have this diagnosis, then you would get referred to, to a doctor for hormones. Um, at, presently, you can go to many clinics and have it be interviewed by a doctor and be prescribed hormones. Um, So you don't have to necessarily go through a mental health step of, you know, lots of therapy. I applied to a sex reassignment program that was at Stanford university, because I thought these people have the highest standards and the the most rigid criteria and i'm gonna if i can pass their muster then yes then this must be real so they didn't ask me to do any mental health assessments i did have i did interview with a um a psychologist and then i interviewed with a surgeon and then i uh was i was Basically, you got referred to a doctor to prescribe hormones. After six months on hormones, I was able to um, have chest reconstruction. And then um, usually they'd say between 18 to 24 months later, then you would be eligible. If providing all was going well, you would be eligible for genital reconstruction. And uh, that's basically the process I went through. And I I only had to wait 13 months between chest reconstruction and genital reconstruction. Um, I was extremely, I was, I was judged to be extremely well-adjusted. I was a professional person. I had a management job in a major corporation and, and uh, I was, you know, things were pretty smooth in my life. So many people have much much bigger obstacles and a much harder time than I did.
0: So for our listeners, when we say FTM, that's female to male. When we speak MTF, that's male to female. So for those who might want to learn more about FTM or MTF communities, how would you go about it? And why are those communities so important while you're going through this?
1: Well, being able to talk to someone who shares your experience, no matter what it is, whether you're going through childbirth, you're going through college, you're going through dating problems at any age, you know, you, having someone to talk to who understands your experience and can possibly give you some ideas if you're kind of stuck or can help you make decisions or. Just by talking things through with you, from a knowledgeable point of reference, it's very, very helpful. Um, some people just have a therapist that they can see, and that's the only point of reference they have. Community actually is, I think, more informative than just a therapist. I'm, I don't discount therapy at all. Therapy can ex- be extremely important for many people for many reasons. And um, I think it, you know, having a good therapist when you're struggling with issues in your life can be very, very helpful, but communities give you perspective that you can't get from just one or two other people. You get a broad array of perspectives. You learn about how to, about characteristics that you Um, that you admire or that you, oh, no, no, that's going too far. I'm not going to be like that person. You know, that's, it's just social experience. And I think it's, um, you know, it's the fact that, well, I should say too, in the early days of medical treatment for this condition, if you will, um, trans people were not encouraged to talk to each other. The goal of treatment was to make you normal. And if you hung out with other trans people, people might be able to tell you were a trans person. Then your goal is to integrate with society and to be, to be normal.
0: That's interesting. Because I would think that you already feel so isolated and yep. different and confused in your body and what's going on. And that by saying, no, don't talk to someone else who can say, yes, I feel the same way. It's got to make it even more painful. And you're kind of an island.
1: Well, they don't do that anymore. They've uh, learned. Thank God. Yeah, I know. Totally. But, the and it was interesting. They used to sometimes have in in some of the clinics, they would have um, support groups that were moderated by a therapist that were mostly for male to female people who were basically trying to learn how to comport themselves as women. But, but the female to male people, and they, this is actually in the medical literature, female to males don't need this so much because for a lot of times when they get to, by the time they get to the clinic, they've already been living as a man. And they like to go it alone and we call this the John Wayne syndrome. Uh, they used to put a lot of gender stereotypes onto us and say, well, you want to be a man, then you want to be John Wayne, right? Because remember, this is the 50s and 60s when this model is developing. And uh, it, it was very odd. And when community began to really form, there were some small support groups for, for trans men, for FTM people in the 70s that were community-based, but they were very insular even then. It wasn't until the 90s that people started to say, look, if we don't talk about who we are, society's never gonna have room for us.
0: So representation matters. There's not a single doubt in my mind when I say that. And preparing for this interview, I really started to think about representation in media, movies, TV shows. And what I realized is there is a lot more of M to F yep. representation on TV than there is F to M
1: Yes, and that's
0: right. why, and even just what you said, how there was a lot more literature for F to M and why was there. I don't want to say plain favorites, but it kind of seems like it's always been more favorable for the M to F versus F to M.
1: Um, I think there's fundamentally some misogyny here. I think there's a lot of fascination with males who think that they're female. That's a, that's in quotes. Um, you know, with and to be blunt, it to for a man who would want to chop it off. Um, you know, I think that people find that kind of stuff. Some people find it titillating. Some people find it fascinating. Some people find it disgusting, uh, and they can't look away. Um, it's just a that's a, something about human perceptions. But for female to male people, the assumption is, I think, well, of course, women want to be men, because men have it better. So yeah, and they're not a threat. They're nothing. They're nobody. They're just women who look like men. Who cares? But the man who transitions to female is a threat, a threat to masculinity because he's broken ranks and a threat to femininity because he's an interloper. And I think this is all grossly unfair and a complete misrepresentation of the human beings that go through this kind of discrepancy or disharmony within the self and and who are trying to find their internal balance.
0: Yeah. I feel like it honestly always comes down to a penis. Like either you want one or like you don't have one and, or you have one and people don't understand why you don't want anymore. And I'm just like, it's an organ. Like it is an organ. It does not define somebody of who they are, or it doesn't define your masculinity or it doesn't define, you know, your femininity. It's an organ. And I just, Like I was reading your book and reading it out loud and, you know, thinking about things like the pains that people go to either get one or get it taken off. I'm like, but that shouldn't society, that shouldn't define you as a person. Um,
1: I think I, you know, it's, it's, it's a bold discussion. A lot of people are not ready for it, but it's so human and so important. So many people are affected by this in one way or another. I mean, look at the fact that um, if, a, if a woman has to have a hysterectomy, does that make her not a woman anymore?
0: It, yes. No, exactly. it doesn't. And I feel like with some, I don't want to say diseases because it's not a disease, but I was leading with like addiction, when things are othered or outside mm-hmm. the standard norms, we look at those situations as either you're weak. Or you're different or not normal. Like, why can't you be normal? But like with addiction, it's a disease. If you had cancer, you wouldn't make someone feel bad for getting treatment. Or like, if, you know, you don't feel great in your body, you believe that you want to become a man. So you start the transitional process. Okay. But if you want to have bigger boobs, people are like, congratulations. I'm happy you got the surgery, (laughs) but it's just, you know, it's. Right. It's those other outliers that we continue as a society to make them feel othered when really it's, they just want the same thing to feel good, to feel healthy and to live their most fulfilled life.
1: That's right. That's right. It's pretty simple, but we are so frightened about sexual topics in this society Mm -hmm. and so skittish about it. And it's just, I mean, you know, one, just take it another step further. People talk about gender ideology these days and how gender ideology is ruining us. Gender ideology didn't come from the trans community. Gender ideology came from the Catholic church. They, and they are the ones pushing this as a way to uh, help uh, eliminate trans people from society. And this is, just playing a human rights violation. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. Kind of switching a little. Um, I know your dad passed away before you fully transitioned. And when I was reading something, it made me love your dad. Never met him. But when you told your parents that you and Samantha were a couple and wanting to live together, and that's why you guys spent holidays together, your mom didn't take it so well, which I feel like is a little bit of a theme. We'll get there with you <laughs> telling your mom some news, Yeah, but your dad said this, I'm sorry that my attitudes made it so difficult for you to tell me something so important about who you are. And he was so accepting yeah. and understanding. Um, talk to us about, What that meant to you in that moment. And then also he never got to see you become the person you felt like you should have always been. Yeah. What do you think he would have thought about that process?
1: I think he would have been challenged by it. I think he would have had some concern, but I think he would have, I think, I think he saw me pretty clearly.
0: It seems like your brother did, too, because when yeah. you told your brother, he said, well, I always looked at you like my big brother anyway, which warned my heart that that yeah. was his response.
1: Yeah, it's true. I was when my dad responded that way, it blew me away because, you know, he was a he was a Nixon, Reagan Republican. Uh, my mom was a Democrat. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like we, you know, we often argued about the Vietnam War uh, you know, when I was in high school and, and, college and, um, but we always loved each other and then the arg the, for him, the argument was not a personal affront. The argument was, uh, a learning to be rational and, you know, it wasn't that we didn't get emotional. I often would get more emotional than my dad eventually in, you know, when I was in like a teenager. And I stomp off to my room, you know, and then I would think about what he said and I'd come out and I'd say, I'm sorry, I flew off the handle. Um, you know, I really, this is how I really feel, but not from an emotional perspective, but trying to be rational. And he, he was always very proud of me when I would do that. And, uh, but he, I had heard him say homophobic things for most of my life not a lot, but occasionally, you know, just occasionally. And um, so I was really scared about what his reaction would be. And when he reacted that way, I was just, I, I, I almost went numb, but at the same time, it was tremendous relief. And Then, you know, so I was having, I was in the room with my dad and my mom and I'm having to balance my mom's, you know, a little overreaction and, you know, thinking that my partner was, was uh, coercing me, you know, and they, for a long time after that, my mom actually seemed like she thought we would never have any friends that we, we now, we weren't the people that she had known us to be. We were now living in the gutter and, uh, and so I had to start bringing friends over, you know, so that she could see that we actually had friends who were normal people. Uh, most of them were heterosexual. I um, mean, you, know, you know, it was just, you know, oh, and, it, you know, she didn't even realize, you know, I was very successful in my profession, you know, and I was not hiding in a closet. You know, I was a confront to the world all the time. I could not wear women's clothing. For example, I I just couldn't.
0: And then when you told your mom you were gonna transition, yeah, she definitely didn't take it well. Um, no, but it could have been a lot worse compared to other people's situations. That's yes. Like, I don't wanna make it seem like yours was the absolute worst.
1: Oh it no, it could have been
0: way, way worse. But yep. she made it be hidden from. You're out from your relatives out of state, which I thought was so interesting that she in her head, almost like prepared an emergency plan about, okay, don't talk to this person that, but then you started telling them on your own and they were all accepting your neighbors. Everyone seemed to be accepting, except your mom. Did she ever come around? To it fully because you talk about how there was a strain on the relationship, you guys kind of stopped talking, and that made me feel sad because you didn't change your thoughts, your feelings didn't change your, yeah. But did you ever feel because she passed away? Did you ever feel like when that happened, you could be at peace with how it ended your relationship?
1: Well, yeah, sort of in the last year of her life, she was a bit more accepting. Um, you know, she recognized that everyone in the world recognized me as a man and her insistence that I wasn't, was not helpful to anybody. Um, it, it was, it made her look ridiculous because people could, people could look at me and see I wasn't a woman. So why would she be referring to me with feminine pronouns? It just made her look like an adult, old woman. You know, yeah. so, she, so she ultimately figured out that I was doing okay and that she shouldn't have to worry. But she was, you know, it was always in her generation, what children did was a reflection on the parents. You know, yeah. you're, if you do this, you're going to make us look bad. It's not about the consequences to you of taking an action. It's you're going to make us look bad. And what will the neighbors think? That was always one of the first things out of her mouth. What will the neighbors think?
0: I feel like sometimes parents now will say, well, what did I do to cause you to be like this? Mm-hmm. And you're making this about you and it's not about you. Yeah. So what else besides don't be so selfish about how this can make you look or what you did? What else would you want to tell parents who have a child um, transitioning?
1: Well, as I said directly to my mother, it's like, I'm not doing this to you. I'm doing it for me. And I think we have a lot more parents now who can actually hear their children saying the things that are important to them And not an understanding that it isn't about them. Um, I think it's, I think it's really important to listen to the kids. The kids may be wrong, but they're not lying. And the important thing is to be present, listen, engage in a conversation understand where their perspective is coming from. If it's really coming from within the child or if they're being told something by somebody else or what their, what their rationale is, what their learning process has been without threatening them about it. Cause you're never going to have an honest conversation if you're threatening. So be present with the child, talk to them about where they're coming from and it's going to not happen in a, a 20 minute conversation it's going to happen over a period of months or years
0: so i want to shift a little and i want you to talk to us about ftm international yep. and you, how you got involved and what is it
1: well when i was when i was trying to figure out how to find steve dane so i could talk to him about what this process would be if I were to go through it and at what I should do if I wanted to do this. Um, I found a group of, uh, I found a, a group called FTM that had just been started by a guy who was just a couple of years younger than me, um, in San Francisco who, um, His name was Lou Sullivan, and he was concerned about many of the same things I was concerned about. And he wanted to, but he'd been exploring it really consciously uh, for a bit longer, and being in touch with people who had information. So he and he was interested in the history also, and he was collecting information and disseminating information. And he was putting together a a newsletter and this new support group. And I eventually had a conversation with him and the next meeting they were going to have, Steve Dane was going to be the guest speaker. So I said, I'm going to be there (laughs) because I wanted to meet Steve Dane. And so that's what happened And I decided to continue to, to attend the group meetings, which were only four times a year at that point. So it was pretty easy commitment to make, but I became friends with Steve Dane and I spent a lot of time with him, asking him questions and, and stuff. But then I would go to these quarterly support group meetings and, and that was in, um, it was 1989 when I met Steve and when I started attending the group, Lou Sullivan died of complications of HIV. He was a gay man and he died in 1991. And a week before he died, he asked me if I would take over his group and make sure that the newsletter got published and all this, because I'm a writer and, and um, so I—I I didn't know he was going to die in a week when I agreed, but he did, and the rest is history. In 1994, with the group of uh, volunteers, we incorporated the organization as a nonprofit educational organization, the support group, and. Um, and called it FTM international because we were, we already had an international subscription base and we were expanding pretty rapidly. And by, by the time, by the late nineties and I stopped being involved with the, with the organization in uh, 1999, but by the late nineties, we were the largest um, support and information network for female to male identified people in the world
0: that just shows you one how many people needed it and were wanting it and the power of community
1: right for and it this to was, go
0: going 9 years from quarterly to
1: well it started being monthly right after Lou died and i you know i told people you have to step up you have to volunteer you have to help yeah you know this is not my group this is our group and You know, we have to start building a community here. Excuse me, this is all before the internet.
0: I know. When I was reading the book and they were talking about no cards of Lou had people's addresses and no cards. And I just thought the dedication that both him and then you showed, showed to me that you guys probably could have used this when you were going through it, which is why you wanted to make it so available for future generations. And you put the building blocks together for to help so many more people. Yes. Um, So in 2016, the National Transgender Discrimination Survey indicated that transgender people experience higher rates of harassment, unemployment, housing discrimination and homelessness than the general population. If you could tell people one thing, whether it be educational, inspirational, what would you want to tell the world about the
1: trans community? The trans community has suffered and the trans community is filled with beautiful, resilient people who are struggling every day to be the full and complete human beings that they are, that you don't want to see and you need to open your eyes and either turn away and don't look and let us be, but don't be killing us anymore. Don't be telling us we can't be alive. We are here. We have always been here, and we will always be here.
0: How can cisgendered individuals be advocates for the trans community? What can we do to help? Because I know that you, like, the trans community has issues with reasonably priced medical care, and just basic civil rights, and the amount of murders or feeling unsafe. How can we help and rally around the trans community?
1: Well, I think really one of the biggest things that people can do, if you haven't met a trans person, um, and you want to learn about trans people, read, there's a lot more books uh, now, in addition to mine, but, um, you know, read books, meet people, go to events, a lot of events are public that trans people are holding. Talk to some trans people. Um, ask a trans person to coffee, you know, or lunch. You know, it, it's just, yeah, feed us. <laughs> no, but I think even if you don't meet a trans person, if you hear somebody saying derogatory things about trans people. Interrupt that. Ask them what's that about. Why do you have that judgment? Why can't you accept people who are different from you?
0: Lastly, before we get to the final three questions, Jameson, what do you want your legacy to be?
1: Hmm. I really would like. Uh, <laughs> I would like people to remember me as somebody who worked hard, was creative was funny, was um, intelligent, was insightful, and tried to make a difference. Well, frankly, and made a difference because I already yes. know I have. Yeah. So let's just say it that way and, and, and made a difference.
0: I end every episode with the same three questions. Yeah. Um, the first question is if you had a quote or mantra that you lived by, what would it be
1: in my mind all the time, whenever I'm questioning or struggling with something, here's what I say to myself, inform, inspire, and empower others. That's my goal. I'm a writer. I'm not just a trans person. I have all I've ever wanted to be in my life as a writer. I am a writer. And I constantly think through, through everything in my life with a writer's eye. And so I'm constantly thinking, how can I communicate? How can I learn more about people and help them and communicate with them and show my expression to help elicit their expression?
0: Powerful mantra. Um, the second question is, if you could relive any one day which day would you choose?
1: I would choose my wedding day, the day that I married my wife, Heidi, um, because it was such an amazing experience. So many people came from across the country. People gave up, we didn't even know how many people gave up their own birthdays and their own anniversaries to come to our wedding. And it was Such a beautiful, amazing day. Um, All these people, so much happiness. And plus, if I relived it, maybe I'd get some of the chocolate-covered strawberries that I never got.
0: We got to send you some. Absolutely. And then the last question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose?
1: So this may sound odd, but it's, she had, excuse me. She has funny cars is the title of the song. She has funny cars. I have no idea why this song is titled that it's by the Jefferson airplane. It's on the surrealistic pillow album. I love the song because I love the drums and the bass in it. And the lyrics to me speak directly to my own focus on communication and, What they basically talk about somebody trying to figure out how to communicate, but knowing intrinsically that it's inside you, all you need to know is inside you.
0: I love it. I'm excited to listen to it. Um, I will go ahead and add it to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can hear your theme song along with everyone else's. Jameson, I just want to take a second and Thank you so much. I was not an educated person prior to reading your book or talking with you or really preparing for this. And I knew that there's been um, so much happening in the trans community. And I just wanna thank you for being so open and so vulnerable through your writing and really your life to help others understand and become advocates and I hope that one day if you're ever in Chicago or I'm out by you we can meet in person and I would love to buy you coffee and get to talk to you and know you better but I really just want to thank you your story is so inspiring and I have been telling everyone I know about the book and how excited I was to talk with you so please know you have an open door to come back whenever you would like if there's anything going on in the trans community that you want others to know about. I would love to have you back anytime you would like to.
1: Oh, thank you, Mallory. That is, that means a lot to me. Thank you so much